the blessing that's ours to assemble and to gather each and every Lord's Day is a day certainly that does not go without observation and a day for which we're so thankful, recognizing that brothers and sisters in Christ for almost 2,000 years have faithfully met, looking forward to that first day of the week, and in so doing have, uh, have offered their heartfelt thanks and appreciation to the God of heaven. And we today join in the appreciation of that very activity. As we come to our lesson this morning, a consideration for the next few moments, we'll cast a spotlight on Jesus and Scripture. Let me at least begin that by presenting circumstances, or at least a set of ideas that perhaps will have a ring of familiarity to it. We each would readily agree and feel very strongly about the fact that the interpretation of the Word of God is an exceedingly basic and an exceedingly fundamental matter. And it is into that light you may have heard discussions or may have been a part of them that go something like this. You discuss perhaps a religiously related matter with someone and they perhaps will reach a point and say, that's the way you see it. I interpret it differently than that. And the conversation typically will soon thereafter basically end and they will go on their way thinking happily about their circumstance and they just seemingly have this understanding that the very same Bible, the same set of ideas can be differently interpreted and everybody's okay with it. Let's focus on that this morning and ask, wouldn't it be fair to say that the person to whom we should be able to look for guidance, for advice on a matter such as this would surely be Jesus the Christ. How did He view Scripture? To ask that differently, when disagreements arose, when particular points of distinction arose, did the Lord say, that's the way you see it? I see it differently, we're both fine. Let's look at a particular set of ideas and see again how the Master looked upon matters such as this one, and perhaps they will be of benefit to us as we ponder in our heart and mind the way to address circumstances like this as well. I'd like to offer perhaps a half dozen considerations, or at least roughly that many, all with the idea of lifting high the banner of how the Lord looked upon the authority and the respect that He had for Scripture. Scripture was not merely an existent thing that was an optional matter. Jesus, in every opportunity, presented, elevated it to the very highest position. Look with me at Matthew chapter 12. We'll look at verses 3 and 5 at least first. And in that particular set of circumstances, you may recall that Jesus had these words to say. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Now, to set the stage for that, remember, the Lord's apostles had gone through the grain fields, and this happened to be a Sabbath, and they had plucked some, and they were immediately rebuked by those nearby and said, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath day. And so they thought it was a matter of Scripture. They appreciated that this was something ought not to be done. Had the Lord respond? Verse 3, he said unto them, that's Jesus speaking, Have ye not read what David did? Now aside from the latter part of that verse, may I at least point out, Jesus began that by saying, Have ye not read? 
there was a particular thing that was readable, directly accessible to them that would offer an element and helpfulness on this matter. It isn't a matter that's left ultimately to what you think. There's something we can read authoritative that will address this concern. Have you not read? Look at verse 5, two verses later. Or have ye not read in the law? One more time, insisting upon and pointing them in the direction. Have ye not read? Look over to Matthew 19 and look at yet another instance wherein a bit of a controversy was potentially arising. Verse number 4 will be our point of observation. To again remind us of what had brought this about, Jesus, you see, was challenged by the Pharisees. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They were immediately hoping to put him on the horns of a dilemma having to do with divorce. Now, rather than being dragged right into, he said, they said, perhaps it was said, he simply said this in verse 4. He answered and said unto them, Jesus again speaking, Have ye not read? One more time in the face of this controversial subject, in the matter touching this issue of great import, have ye not read? Let's try another one. Matthew 22, verse 31. It's at this time, the Sadducees had come before the Master, and they too were challenging Him regarding some of their beliefs. And you might recall that they didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in angels. Verse 31 says, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read... He directly addressing these Sadducees said, Don't you know? Haven't you read? It's in the very Scriptures that thus He pointed them to. I hope we've already looked at enough to ground us in the appreciation that when the Lord was, you see, in the position of addressing matters of perspective or matters of controversy, have you not read? You'll notice next on that slide, I would offer you these additional thoughts. In Luke chapter 16, in the midst of that beautiful and very prompting presentation, you and I know it very well, the rich man and Lazarus. These two, of course, had reached the point of their death. And in this marvelous parable that Jesus taught, we're reminded in the closing part of that chapter, you may recall that a great and earnest plea was made. Send back one that he might tell them not to come to this place. The rich man again hoping to divert his brother so they wouldn't come to that location. And Jesus made this statement. Or perhaps we should say Father Abraham in the course of that presentation made this statement. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Even if one comes back from the dead, they'll not be persuaded if they already don't have a respect for Moses and the prophets. Well, that's another reminder, is it not? That the Lord taught a very powerful and fundamental and dramatic respect in regard to Scripture. You'll notice next on that slide, I've taken you back to that lesson text. Brother Wayne read earlier verse number 4 in Matthew chapter 4. That'll be one of the verses to which I'll direct our attention. There are two others, however, and of course these come in the scene of those moments of temptation when Satan t 
told Jesus, turn these stones into bread. In response to that temptation, might you and I observe, here was the devil insisting one thing. And Jesus, however, was understanding that the application of Scripture would lead to a different conclusion. And so he said, it is written. It's written. Obviously, something that can be read. So much like those earlier considerations when he said, have you not read? It is written, the Lord said. But you and I know the devil didn't give up. Look down further down in the verse, verse number 6. He tries a second temptation. This time the Lord responded in verse number 7, It is written again. One more time the Lord made the observation, It is written. And this settled absolutely any concern relative to that temptation. It is not to be done, and here's the reason. It is written. The devil, however, wasn't finished, for he tried a third temptation. You may notice it in the words of verses 8 and 9. But then verse number 10, we have Jesus' response. He said, it is written. And obviously the pattern is evident. Three times the Master, upon using the Word of God, three times He set forth the fact it is written. And three times He chased the devil away. It is with that in mind, I've simply invited your observation to that slide to say this. Jesus considered Scripture as absolutely final when its statements were such that it addressed a particular matter, then that closed the discussion. It was absolutely authoritative. That is such a breath of fresh air, isn't it? In the midst of a world where some say, that's the way you see it. May you and I appreciate, if we are to be like Jesus, in the words of those who live in the middle part of our country, He was a scriptorian. Let the Scriptures do the talking. And when that was thus done, that answered and put to rest the issues concerning the matters under discussion. In many ways, didn't Paul feel somewhat similarly? In Romans 4, verse number 3, that very compelling question in the midst of this discussion to the church at Rome, that group of people motivated in a number of ways and thinking a number of ways, Paul said, What saith the Scripture? One more time, the Scripture is where one shall find the answers. As you and I close that slide, isn't it then fair to say, the Bible itself encourages us to feel no differently than what we have learned in regard to Paul and in regard to the authority that Jesus had with respect to the Word of God. For isn't it true that on the day of judgment it shall be this that shall serve as the standard for judgment? John twelve forty eight. Jesus Himself said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. What an occasion it shall be for Jesus to open this book and to judge your life and mine in accordance to this. And wouldn't it be a faithful thing for Him to read a certain verse and say, why didn't you do this? You knew it needed to be done. You often had reflected upon it and read about it. And yet, you and I shall have no successful answer. As we close that slide, we have at least put in place 
the blessed beauty of the Lord's respect for Scripture and its authority. But that only perhaps leads us to discuss tradition. You see, that discussion I had raised earlier where some might be quick to say, that's the way you see it. I interpret it differently than that. And yet in so many ways, what basically is being referenced as interpretation rests upon traditions of men. Now, they may be old traditions, and they may be traditions written a long time ago, but I thought we would at least for a portion of the lesson today reflect, what did Jesus say about tradition? Does the Bible say what He said about it? Does it reveal to us that truth? It does. Let's look at a few, and as you can see, I will develop a few of them following a pattern like this. In Matthew 15, beginning in verse number 7, you may remember that one more time the Lord was challenged. There were those who presented the following scenario to Him. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now here was a scenario in which the Lord was directly challenged. He said, I have a question they did. I see your disciples don't wash their hands. And you see, they considered this a matter of right standing before God. Now nowhere in the Old Testament had that been said, but over the course of time and over the course of years, traditions spoken by men had been elevated to the point where this is what's to be done, so they said, in order to please God. Here is a direct situation where we can then ask, how did Jesus react to this tradition? Did He say the tradition was absolute? Did He place it on equal footing with Scripture? Let's read on. He answered and said unto them, verse 3, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother. Now that was, of course, literally tradition. I'm sorry, Scripture in the Old Testament. And he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift. By whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father and mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. The Lord thus made this rather directed point to them. You've made this statement, you've made this claim, and yet you yourself, by your own tradition, have set aside God's commandment. God said, honor your parents, and yet you claim that there's a loophole such that I don't have to do it. Did he elevate tradition to the point where you say that it was equal to Scripture? Let's read verses 7, 8, and 9. Ye hypocrites, you might note the name he called them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men." The Lord said what they were doing was teaching commandments of men. And any time you do that, you thus oppose the commandment of God. And that leads to vain worship. It leads to improper living. 
It leads to unholy appreciation before God. So is it not evident that Jesus did not elevate human tradition to the same place as Scripture? It was far beneath it. In fact, He made a strong statement of opposition between the two. Notice again in verses 3 and following, He stated that you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition. Sometimes human tradition will lead to a transgression of God's command. We ought never forget that. Tradition is not the same as command of God. The next point on that slide then will be this one. You and I will remember that one of the most frequent issues that was brought before him by those religious leaders of that day was this. Isn't it interesting? And don't you find it incredibly intriguing how often in the New Testament something is said that Jesus did on the Sabbath? I do not believe that that was accidental. In fact, we and I know the Holy Spirit preserved what He did because it has in it the needed matters for your understanding and mine. And how often did Jesus heal somebody on the Sabbath? It was incredibly frequent. And yet, almost every time, He was immediately rebuked. Don't you know you're breaking the Sabbath? Don't you know it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Nowhere in the Old Testament was that ever said. That had become a tradition of men. Now, the Old Testament had said, don't work on the Sabbath. But there was nothing out of it that led to the statement that they had placed upon it. They had taken that simple statement the Lord had made and built into it a mountain of things that could not be done on the Sabbath. We have the opportunity to ask, how did Jesus react? When they challenged Him and said, you're not able to heal on the Sabbath, did He say, I'm sorry? And ask for their forgiveness? And ask for God's forgiveness? We know He did not. In fact, we know that no one knew the Old Testament better than Jesus. No one understood it better than He. And yet, as He healed on the Sabbath, there was on one particular occasion He said, if an animal falls into the ditch on the Sabbath, won't you get it out? In fact, as He made that kind of a presentation and pointed them in great directness to these traditions that they had elevated, they were the ones in error. I've listed for you a number of those passages. Mark 1, verses 21 and following. Matthew 8, verses 14 and following. Matthew 12, verses 9 and following. John 5, verses 1 and following. John 9, verses 1 and following. Luke 13, verses 10 and following. Luke 14, verses 1 and following. Every one of them, the Lord healed on the Sabbath, and He was challenged by it. And you and I will remember in some of them, there's a lengthy discussion that developed from it as the case wherein the man that, that was blind, ultimately there was such a consideration relative to that one that there was a great deal of discussion about ultimately what happened, who was responsible for it, and what was the right thing to do. I'll simply use this point in the lesson to say, Jesus knew what men's traditions had said, and He would have none of it. He wasn't interested in elevating human tradition. Men said you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. It didn't matter anything to Jesus. 
because God had never said it. And today, when there are those who have concocted traditions of men and who have elevated them and they use that as their basis for saying, well, that's the way you see it. I don't see it that way. May we never compromise Scripture for the traditions of men. May we never drag into a discussion where there is less than proper respect for the Word of God and it develops into a matter of focusing on human tradition. It likely is a discussion gone wrong. Maybe one final thing on that slide then would be, Sometimes traditions thus can prove very challenging and also ultimately sinful. I've asked you to consider passages like 1 Peter 1 verse 18. In the heart of that particular epistle, Peter had some rather stern, if I may use that word, rather strong statements to make, and I'll read it like this. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Peter was writing to individuals, and you'll notice that it was said concerning them that from their fathers they had received traditions, and those traditions involved corruptible things that were sinful. May I say that it's true, not all traditions are sinful, but some of them can be. And it is in that regard that we have to be very mindful of human tradition. As long as it doesn't oppose the Word of God, perhaps there's no real challenge with it, but we ought never even then to elevate it to equality with Scripture. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, concerning tradition, Paul would have these words to say, It relates to your position and mine very intriguingly. It reads as follows. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, who hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace... Those traditions mentioned there were those essences of truth bequeathed to those first century Christians by virtue of their allegiance to the matters of faith. The apostles had taught those things, and so those traditions were solid and strong. Traditions merely that have no basis more than men are traditions that can in fact be in error. Today, we know there are many in our world who are motivated by tradition. That's the way my daddy did it. That's the way my grandparents did it. That's just the way we've always done it. May you and I know that is no reason, ultimately, for doing anything. Maybe there's an element of efficiency to it. Maybe there's an element of consideration, but that by itself surely must not be the reason. It must go stronger and deeper than that. Today, as we have discussed Jesus and Scripture, we have learned that He elevated Scripture so very highly. But as far as tradition, He wasn't at all motivated by that. As we close that slide, only one part remains in the lesson, and it's this development. It has to do with the one final thing that it occurred to me might be worthwhile for our brief consideration today. 
having to do with the implication of Scripture. And I say it that way with care. On occasion, there are those who, in discussion with you or me, will simply say, the Bible does not say that. Specifically, in terms of much of our consideration of worship and much of our consideration of the plan of salvation, they are quick to say, it does not come out and explicitly say that. And so how can you bind that on me or anybody else? Sometimes in that just kind of a discussion, some of the points upon this slide are then attempted to be made. They make a strong statement, well, there are explicit things in the Bible and there are implicit things, and you cannot bind that which is implicit. You may have read about that or may have heard individuals make that claim. I simply will say this. If God implies something in the Bible, even if He doesn't come out and explicitly say it, may we ask it this way, is it still His expectation that what He implied is binding, is demanded, and is important? I, I would assure all of us the answer is an overwhelming yes. In fact, isn't it true, and we all know it's so, you don't have to explicitly state something in order for there to be truth connected to it. Let me give you an example. Suppose I tell you that here is a square that is one foot on a side. I have told you one particular explicit truth. Do you know other truths, however? Do you know the perimeter is four feet? You do, though I never said it. Do you know the area is one square foot? You do, but I never said it. Isn't it true that by the fact I gave one piece of information, that was enough to deduce absolutely the correctness of other ones? May I suggest something is true along that line with the Word of God? If God implies something, though He doesn't necessarily have to come out and explicitly say it, that truth is still just as demanded and just as vital. And so it is, as you journey through that slide with me, you'll notice the Bible, in fact, teaches this on a number of pretty interesting occasions. I would point out there near the bottom that you'll notice in Matthew 22, verses 23 and following, it seems to me one of the strongest evidences anywhere in this to be found in the New Testament. The scene, oddly enough, is one that you and I mentioned earlier. We had noted that when the Sadducees came before Jesus, they didn't believe in the resurrection, and they didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in life after death. And yet, as they told Jesus that record, we know a fella, he was married, but he died, and he left no child. And so his brother married the woman, and that proceeded through seven brothers. And then they said, finally, all the brothers died, the woman died, and they asked, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Well, they just knew, or at least expected, the Lord couldn't answer that, for all of them had been husband to her here on earth. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Jesus said this, You do greatly err not knowing the Scriptures or the power of God, Jesus said there's something in the Scriptures that teaches concerning this. 
One more time, he pointed them right back to the Word of God. But did you notice the particular text to which the Lord turned their attention? He said, the God that we serve, He is the God of the living. And then he mentioned Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And oddly enough, at the scene of the burning bush, Jesus quoted from a statement made on that occasion and said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But the point is, those three had been dead a long time by then. In fact, the youngest of the bunch, Jacob, he'd already been dead 198 years by that time. Almost 200 years Jacob had been dead, and God said, I am the God of Jacob. The observation is this. Jesus said they're not dead. By the statement God made, they're not dead. There is life after death. The fullness of the Lord's argument. The Old Testament didn't come out anywhere and say there is life after death, but Jesus quoted that passage. And He asserted in direct course relative to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're still alive. Isn't it interesting? Jesus had Scripture. In our study of that this morning, I hope we have a renewed appreciation for the Word of God. What a blessing it is to have it. What a gift it is to possess it. Because in that we have that which is what God revealed to us. Human tradition is not equal to it. Human perception, human thought is not equal to it. It is that which shall be opened at the judgment. This very morning as we come near the close of this lesson, the Scripture tells us what must be done in order to be saved. I haven't determined that. Our elders haven't determined that. No man can determine that. But we do notice that the Bible has set it forth. And therefore, it is not left to a point in discussion. Well, you see it that way and I see it a different one. Because we all know, though I didn't develop it very much, but baptism is often put into that category. There are those who say, well, you see it that baptism is required. And they say, well, I just don't see it that way. My friend, if the Word of God teaches it, there is no other way to see it if we're going to please the God of heaven. And I don't want to argue with Jesus, do you? Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That settles it. That and so many other passages that discuss that point. So today, anyone in this audience that has reached a point of you're knowing wrong from right, and you know that the Lord died for you, you know that there's a heaven to be gained and a hell to avoid, and you know that there's a plan of salvation in place, but to this point you haven't submitted to it. Why do you delay? What are you waiting for? The first day in November 2020 could be the eternally changing day in your life. As of this moment, you're headed for eternal perdition, but half hour from now, with baptism complete, your name in the book of life, you're headed to heaven. Isn't that what you want? Isn't it what you yearn for? If today we could be of assistance in that way, we'd be honored to help you. But maybe you're a wayward child of God. Over the course of time, you've been motivated by discussions and maybe you have begun to elevate tradition to the point where Scripture is. Don't ever do that.
it's not equal. Today, maybe you need to rededicate your life to truth, to the Word of God. If we could pray for you in terms of strength, it'd be our desire. This very day, if we could be of help in any of these ways, we would encourage you to come and invite you to do so while together we stand and while we sing.